I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. My guest today combines being the valedictorian of his college class with being a sniper when it comes to shooting a basketball. Shippensburg native went to Johns Hopkins and set shooting records. Became a shooting coach and worked both with the Bucks and the Boston Celtics. Went in the private business because he had an MBA, then went to Florida State the coach under Leonard Hamilton, was recruited to Florida Gulf Coast and made it to the round of 16 and has become the winningest coach in USC Trojan history. Our guest, Andy Enfield, the head basketball coach at USC. Welcome, friends got the pleasure today to have the valedictorian of his class at Johns Hopkins, who not only was a tremendous student, but set all sorts of shooting records while playing for Johns Hopkins. Talk, talk about two levels of skill that you developed young, obviously being a bright and a skilled shooter. So how did that transform itself? I had a good fortune of growing up in a household with two parents that were school teachers. My mother was a sixth grade teacher and my father, who just passed away this past September, he was a ninth grade and eighth grade middle school and junior high social studies and history teacher as well as English. So uh, I, academics is always a big part of our household. And I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. So there wasn't a whole lot to do outside of school and sports. At a young age, I was fortunate, again, to have a father who coached basketball. So not only was a school teacher, but he was a ninth grade coach at Shippensburg Junior High School. I was always in the gym with him at a young age and developed my shooting ability because I would practice on the side of his practices, the ninth grade practices, for hours and hours uh, when I was younger. And since we didn't have the youth AAU travel ball at a young age, I didn't start playing organized basketball until I was in fourth grade. So my early years were really spent with my father on the side of his ninth grade practices, working on my skills. You go to Johns Hopkins, you have tremendous success, not only in, in school, but on the court. And then you decide, I think part of the time when you're there or right after you graduate, you put camps together to be able to be a shooting coach. How did that uh, materialize? Because then you leverage that into getting some shooting jobs, working in the NBA. When I was in graduate school at the University of Maryland, I was getting my MBA in finance and entrepreneurship, and they had an entrepreneurship program there that was very uh, enlightening and, and very informative, and they gave me a great mentor, Chris Olander, in, in Baltimore, and I, I decided to start my own business based on my experiences with the entrepreneurship and began all-net basketball as I graduated from Maryland in my second year of business school, and all-net basketball incorporated camps and clinics for youth, grade school, high school age for boys and girls to teach them how to shoot the basketball correctly. 
And I also had a goal of becoming an MBA, a shooting coach slash assistant coach. And my main goal was to parlay all net basketball into a job in the MBA as a shooting coach. And fortunately, uh, after a year and a half or two years of doing so, uh, I was able to break in uh, as the shooting coach for the Milwaukee Bucks. Mike Dunleavy, who I'm still friends with today, hired me as a full-time assistant coach slash shooting coach in the Milwaukee Bucks in 1994. And then uh, you go from there to the Celtics? Two years later, after Milwaukee, uh, I first went back to Washington, D.C. and ramped up my consulting business in the NBA and made my first instructional shooting video with Glenn Rice of the Charlotte Hornets, who at the time was the best shooter in the NBA. It was called uh, the All Net Shooting Video with Glenn Rice and Andy Enfield. And we had a great time shooting that video, and it, it did very well selling. the. Uh, it was a VHS copy. That's how old we are. It was a VHS copy before the DVD even came out. So two years after the Milwaukee uh, coach coaching job, I was hired as an assistant coach for Rick Pitino and the Boston Celtics and spent a few years uh, in Boston. So when you talk about Dunleavy and Pitino, any specific uh, pieces of coaching philosophy or that has grounded you or helped you is in your career? Mike Dunleavy was an unbelievable X and O's coach, understood the game at the highest level because he was a great NBA player, a great NBA coach for multiple franchises. So I learned a lot about the game from him. And also in timeouts, he was very good at keeping his cool and drawing up something that always worked. Uh, Rick Pitino is extremely charismatic. He was coming off his Kentucky days, winning the national championship. It was his first NBA job at the Celtics. So I learned a lot from Rick, uh, how to motivate and, and, and how to run a, run a program. And also uh, just watched as he, uh, just his, really his brilliance and his charisma. So, uh, I learned a lot uh, on and off the court from both Mike and Rick. So that ends, and then you look like you take advantage of your degree and go back and get out of coaching and get into some entrepreneurial opportunity. I had some great opportunity in New York City. Uh, a couple partners and uh, CEO, uh, Tom Risk, uh, gave me an opportunity to work with his group. And I learned a lot from Tom. What was the name of that group? Uh, we had a company called Tract Manager that uh, I was a part of. and. Uh, had invested some money in a part of an investment group and, and, and Tom ran the company was just a brilliant CEO and an entrepreneur. And so I learned a lot from him as well as, as well as a few other people that were uh, working with us. And uh, so, so it was almost like uh, a sports company starting from the ground up. It was a startup company. So once again, I was with a great management team and just a part of a, uh, it was really a team though, starting it's like building a new basketball program. You start from the ground up, you have a new product, and you have to create a market for it. And so it was a great experience for me before I went back into college coaching. What was the product? It was a contract management solution for the healthcare and real estate companies, healthcare and real estate markets, predominantly in healthcare. And so I had a lot to learn because I didn't know much about the healthcare market. But it's uh, it's very much like any startup company. You just have to do a lot of odd jobs and and do whatever you can to contribute to the success of your company. How does Florida State happen? Leonard Hamilton. I, I still kept my hand in the basketball business part time. Uh, I still had some consulting jobs with some NBA teams and individual NBA players as a shooting coach, individual player development coach, and I also spoke uh, was was a guest speaker at the Final Four again on shooting and. I kept in contact with Leonard because 
Leonard Hamilton because when I was coaching in the NBA with the Celtics and the Bucks, I used to work out some NBA players at the University of Miami gym when he was the head coach at the University of Miami before he took the Wizards job. So I knew Leonard for many years and he had had a uh, he had a job opening on his coaching staff and we kept in contact and he had asked me if I would ever consider coming to college to be an assistant coach for him at Florida State and and uh, talked it over with my wife at the time, Amanda. We'd just been married and had our first child. And she said, well, uh, if you're willing to do it, then I'm willing to move to Florida and give up my job. She was a fashion model in New York City, traveling all over the world. And she said, look, I'm willing to give it up and give this a try and let's go give, give it a shot. So, so we moved to Tallahassee, Florida in 2006. Well, your best job recruiting might have been for Amanda. Talk about how that happened. That's an interesting story on how you two became friends. Amanda had a great love for college sports, specifically college basketball. And I met her through a friend at the gym. Amanda had tickets to an NCAA tournament game to go watch her beloved Oklahoma State Cowboys in Boston. And I just happened to be the guy that gave her and her friend a ride to the games and got to know her through that. So it was a it was a very lucky experience for me because we're married 16 years later with three children. Well, you also talked about the she played pickup basketball, and then she'd be on the team, and you'd be the only one to throw the ball. Well, that was her friend. That's how we met. Uh, oh. Jenny uh, uh, Jenny used to play with all the guys, and, and she was a great athlete. Amanda was her friend. And, and so Amanda had the tickets to the game, and Jenny was my friend from the gym. So uh, uh, it, it was a lot of fun. So that was a good recruiting effort. Recruiting Amanda was uh, yeah, my number one uh, recruit of all time. So uh, she's a special, special mother and uh, an amazing person. So how does Gulf Coast happen? We had great success at, at Florida State, working for Leonard Hamilton. He's a Hall of Fame coach. He's a, he's a Hall of Fame man, uh, just a tremendous person. And so I spent five years there. I, I didn't had never coached in college. He gave me the opportunity to go be part of a staff. And well, we had three NCAA tournament runs in a row. And, and uh, that recruiting class we brought in actually went to the, won the ACC and went to the four, four straight tournament the year after I left. So it was a great time to learn the college game, to learn how to recruit and, and learn from the best. Leonard's one of the all-time great coaches in, our, in, in, in the game that, in college basketball history. So after our success at Florida State, I was a finalist for the Florida Gulf Coast job, and Ken Cavanaugh was the athletic director. And I believe I became one of five finalists after a long and lengthy um, process and was fortunate enough to get a job offer to be the head coach of FGCU. So how do you turn that around? It was challenging because they had just gone from Division Two to Division One. It was a brand new school. No one knew about it. In fact, I'd never been on campus. So our, our recruiting sales pitch was uh, we, we had to sell the future because there was no past history. It was, it was just programs just eligible for Division One to go to the conference tournament and the NCAA tournament, I think, in our first year. So we had, to, had a lot of sales. It was, it was much like uh, I had done all my life with selling in basketball, selling with the startup company, creating market. It was like creating a uh, market and, and creating a program. And, and it was so the sales pitch was very creative, uh, but very sincere. And I, and I think we had a few young, talented players like Brett Comer, Bernard Thompson to, to buy in and, and, and give it a shot. And then the existing players on our team, Sherwood Brown, Chase Feeler, Eddie Murray, we had to sell them as well. And then Eric McKnight, we brought in as a recruit from Iowa State. He was a, he was a sit out and so, so uh, it all came together very quickly. Uh, in our second year, we were really good uh, and went to the Sweet 16. The first year, we, we were 500, but, but young and talented and learning 
learning a lot about each other. And, and then the second year, we just uh, uh, became a very good basketball team. So had you balanced the recruit, you had a, uh, players that you inherited, and then thinking about the college market, the JC transfer, or recruiting somebody that's at a four-year school that comes and sits out. How did you approach the market in terms of putting the roster together? We wanted to start over, so we really wanted to go the young route and build and develop. So Brett Comer was a high school senior at the time in Orlando. Bernard Thompson was in Rockdale outside of Atlanta. So those were our first two recruits. There's some talent on the existing roster with Sherwood, who had been a walk-on, who had worked his way to a scholarship player. And Chase Feeler was from West Virginia. He, he had a, really wasn't a, a very skilled player, but we thought uh, he had a, had a great work ethic and, and, and good size and length. And, and then Eric McKnight was a transfer. He was young. He spent one year at Iowa State. So we really wanted to build with youth and develop. And Eddie Murray was a veteran, but he was a local uh, kid from Fort Myers. And, but he really hadn't had any production for his first two years at Florida Golf Girls. I think he scored 11 points his entire sophomore year. But, but we built around those uh, young men and, and developed them. And then we added a few key pieces. And uh, all of a sudden, they, they became uh, not only really good individually, but a great basketball team together. Pat Hayden led the search at USC when they had an opening. You were selected. So talk about what you inherited and how you worked to transform it and become the most successful coach in USC basketball history. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. Uh, uh, we've had great success at SC, but it's been a process. Uh, our first two years was much like the, the Florida Gulf Coast first year, where we knew our talent level wasn't at a competitive level in the Pac-12, uh, but we wanted to build with youth. And, and we set out to, uh, I had a great, had great coaching staff. Jason Hart, my associate head coach, is still with me. We built the program. Chris Capco is still with me. He's an assistant coach. He started out as our director of ops. And, and Curtis... Schultz, our strength coach, is still with me after eight years, and he was our strength coach. He was my first hire from Washington, the Baltimore, D.C. area. Uh, so we, we built this thing together uh, uh, with local talent. We made a, a point to try to sell the future to Southern California. We knew that the Los Angeles area talent base was strong year to year, uh, but we also knew we had to go recruit nationally and fill in the, the pieces. But unfortunately, at the time, the USC basketball brand needed a, a little uh it needed some more sales jobs and uh sales job in the southern california area to convince kids that they could come to usc and, and get their degree but also compete for championships and so our, our, co our assistant coaches did a great job of that we had some young talented players jordan mclaughlin elijah stewart chemezi metu benny boatwright were the first four core players and we added from there and, and uh, th those guys deserve a lot of credit because when they signed with usc we were, we were the last place team in the Pac-12 uh, for two seasons. And for them to take that leap of faith and then have the existing guys on our roster like Julian Jacobs and Nikola Yovanovic develop. And then we added Kate and Reinhardt as a transfer. Uh, by, the, by our third year here, they were an NCAA tournament team. And that, and that was really special to, to be last place in the Pac-12 for two years. And all of a sudden, year three, we're in the NCAA tournament. And then year four, we set the school record with 26 wins. And, won, and, and we won two games in the NCAA tournament. And that jump-started our entire program. Two things. I mean, one, you're coming in, you've got UCLA in your back door. And two, you're coming to a football school where basketball is seen as, you know, not a, not a number one sport. I coached at UCLA, and, you know, 
the, the word was, if you wanted to play basketball, you went to UCLA. If you wanted to play football, you had to go to USC. So we had to recruit out of state in order to, to build our brand in 1976. USC had had that horse and they were running up and down and winning games. And you bring a player on the Westwood campus as opposed to the USC campus. We thought we had something to sell in Westwood. But uh, understand hurdles you had. So talk about how you had over, you still have, you had a, a tremendous win against UCLA this past weekend and, um, you know, got yourself in the top 20 and uh, talk about that UCLA rivalry. And then, you know, having a program that has such a strong football tradition. Our goal as a coaching staff was to realize that UCLA is a blue blood program. They have great tradition, but we wanted to make, Two, two strong teams in Los Angeles. There was, we thought there was no reason that U, USC could not be at the same level of UCLA in basketball because of the talent base, because of a, we thought we could develop some players. But we also understood the power of, of the brand of UCLA basketball. It's, it's very similar to U, USC football. Uh, they have the tradition. Uh, but there's no reason you can't have two good teams in Los Angeles. And, and so we, we never tried to compete just with UCLA. We, we realized that uh, we respected their uh, tradition. We respect their players. They have great coaches. Uh, but we went out uh, about our own business and, and decided to, to uh, sure, we could beat UCLA twice in a year, but if you lose to everybody else in the Pac-12, you're still going to be last in the Pac-12. So we made it a goal to compete against everybody and, and, and try to uh, downplay the rivalry within the city because we know, we knew then, and we always know that UCLA is going to get good basketball players. And we actually don't have a, personal dis dislike for them. Uh, I respect Coach Cronin. And I think their players, we recruited all their players. Uh, uh, we, we, we like their families and we think they're very good basketball players. So we, have, we have a mutual respect in the city. So when we play them, it is a rivalry game because of the tradition. And sure, we want to win the game. But at the same time, I think there is a camaraderie and a respect, a mutual respect among, among the programs and the players, and especially from USC to, to UCLA. We really respect them. I give our coaching staff a lot of credit. We, we, we've been able to recruit three-star players, four-star players, and develop them. Uh, when we first got the job, we couldn't go out and get the five-star or the highly ranked kids uh, because we just didn't have the success of our program or the tradition. So now that we've had some success, it's a little easier recruiting, uh, not only locally but, but regionally and nationally. Uh, so so uh, it, it's great. I think L.A. having two good basketball teams, UCLA and USC, or are very good teams right now. I think it's great for the city and it's great for both programs. So when you think about your development as a shooter, how do you do your practices, individual drills and so forth that really takes advantage of some of the skills you learned? Well, I think in shooting, it's, it's the most difficult thing to change in a player skill set because your shot is almost like your fingerprint. It's like your golf swing. It's, so to, to change it, it takes a lot of repetitions and it takes a willingness on the player's part to break it down and make the adjustments. And those adjustments, as small as they might be, may, it may take 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 shots to, to have a positive effect. And a lot of players just aren't willing to do that. A lot of players have to fail be, before they're, they, they're willing to change. They have to hit rock bottom as a shooter, as an offensive player. So, so now some players are, are uh, very open to change and adjustments. And through my, through my coaching career, those type of players have had extremely successful changes and adjustments and their percentages have gone up in the NBA and, and at the college level from 
Florida State to Florida Gulf Coast to USC and then back in my NBA days. Uh, but each player is different and each player has a different uh, ability to to change. And, and so we try to make adjustments not only in their shooting technique, but also their offensive repertoire, their skill sets, their triple threat, their post moves, their face up moves, their off the dribble moves, et cetera. And, and uh, I give our coaching staff a lot of credit. Our assistant coaches are tremendous working with players. And I think it, over the course of our eight years here, you've seen players really improve. In fact, we just uh, put five guys in the NBA the last three years and Evan Moley will be our sixth NBA player in, in, in four years. And, and I think right now we're fourth or fifth in the country among, among draft picks the last three years. Are there some keys in terms of shooting that you look for all the time that are consistent with the really outstanding high percentage shooters? Generally, the technique is very similar to uh, how I teach or, or what we teach as a staff, uh, how I shoot the ball myself. If you look at the great shooters in, in the NBA and college game, they all have great follow-through. They all have a great spin or rotation on the basketball. They, they shoot the ball predominantly with one hand instead of two. And if their offhand gets involved, it uh, usually affects their shot in a negative way. Uh, and they have good balance. Uh, so, so there are some things in the technique that uh, give you a chance to become a great shooter. Great shooters also usually have very good hand-eye coordination. Uh, there, there are some players that uh, just, just they, they could shoot thousands of shots a day that just won't get much better because they don't have the natural – hand-eye coordination or the ability to uh, judge distance. So uh, I think uh, the technique is number one, and, th and then you have the uh, hand-eye coordination, and, th and then the self-confidence to go do it in the game. Uh, some players can shoot very well in practice, but you put them under pressure in the game situation or percentages drop dramatically. How do you think you've impacted the program? You've talked about the recruiting. Just talk about it on a, on a community basis. Well, I learned from the best. Leonard Hamilton really taught me what's important to, to develop a basketball program, not just a, just a team. Our goal as a staff was to uh, recruit talented players, develop them, and then get them involved on campus, uh, have them engaged within the, the USC community uh, to, to succeed academically. Number one, we, we uh, have 100% graduation right here for the players that we've recruited. Uh, they've all graduated on time. In fact, we've had three or four players graduating in three years. Jordan McLaughlin graduating in three years. Got his graduate degree his senior year. Chemezi Metu is in the NBA with the Kings. He graduated in three years with a 3.1 GPA. Uh, so we've had a lot of success academically because Heather Bell and our academic support staff does a tremendous job. We have weekly meetings, and, and I check classes myself. As hard as that is to see, I, I, I'm on campus with my staff. And, and when the head coach of a program shows up, you better be in class. Uh, so so we, we, we don't take that for granted. USC is a top 20 school academically in the world. And we want our players to succeed uh, in life afterwards. So, so when, you, when you build a program, academics, campus engagement come first. And then the development on the court comes second. And, and, and when you can become a great player and a great student at a place like USC, you're going to be set up for success in life. There's no doubt about that. What do you feel in terms of your biggest impact on the program's been? I think just creating a program, uh, a program of success uh, that players and parents know that if they, they come to USC, that they will get their college degree and they will be set up for success on the court and off the court. And, and I think as a college coach, it's different than the NBA. The NBA is more about uh, the 82 game schedule. It's more of a business, even though college basketball is a big business. But as a college coach, you're, you're more worried about the young men on your team 
academically off the court and on the court than you are about the business side of things. And that that's the great pleasure we have as college coaches is to experience it and help mentor these young men and put them in a, put them in a uh, position to compete for championships on the court and have the dreams of their life. The alumni trying to build relationships with alumni. That's different. I mean, when you're the head coach, as opposed to an assistant coach, that relationship with the alumni becomes critical. How have you worked to try to do that? The alumni part of it's the easy part of this job because USC Trojans, everyone knows, it has a, such a strong and, and rabid uh, fan base and alumni network. Uh, that there are USC Trojan alumni all over the place here from Los Angeles County to Orange County and, and throughout the state. And they're very enthusiastic. They've been extremely supportive of our, of our men's basketball program. And I really enjoy the relationships I've developed over the years. Uh, just tremendous people. And uh, that's the easy part of my job to, to socialize and to uh, go to the golf course in the off season or have uh, functions on campus. Uh, that, that, should, that just comes naturally. And, and I think uh, the, the USC alumni network has been so supportive and it, it's a lot of fun. Well, last year, you're looking like you're heading into the tournament and the pandemic hit. And now you've had to manage from that time through now. Talk about how you've how the pandemic's impacted you and how you've approached it. Yeah, it, our, our team last year was playing very good basketball. We were 22 and nine, had the second best record in the Pac-12. Uh, we were a game behind Oregon. They were 23 and eight. We were really excited to play in the Pac-12 tournament because we had had a three or four game winning streak to end the season. We were playing good basketball. We thought we had a chance to win the Pac-12 tournament in Las Vegas. And then we knew we were, had done enough already to go to the NCAA tournament with a pretty good seed. And we thought we could win games in that tournament as well. So uh, it was devastating to our players when we, when we were about to play uh, Arizona in the Pac-12 tournament, that our game was canceled. And then a few hours later, they canceled the NCAA tournament. That was a very difficult time uh, for our players and our coaching staff and our fans uh, because uh, we had worked so hard. Our players had, had worked so hard to put themselves in a, posi a great position. Uh, but they did a great job, our team, uh, understanding that this was a pandemic. This was much bigger than USC basketball. So they, they took a very unselfish approach. Uh, they, they never once complained uh, to us or to the media about uh, how, how devastating it was. Uh, they, they recognized that the pandemic was going to affect and had already affected uh, people uh, uh, with, with families and individuals and their health. And, and so they understood the, the uh, just the, the gravity of the situation. And... We came back to L.A. and, uh, like everybody else, started isolating. Uh, but th this offseason, because of L.A. County, we weren't allowed to work with our players until September. So we really went from about March 9th through uh, the end of September, early October, before we, we could even get outside with them on the court because of the strict rules of L.A. County. Uh, but our players hung tough, and uh, we had to rebuild an entire new roster this year and, and uh, had only three returnees. So it was a very – probably the most unique and challenging off-season and season in my coaching career. I have to say that with the pandemic and not having the players for so long, how did you monitor their what they were doing? How did your coaches manage non-contact yet keeping them doing something that was productive? Well, my wife Amanda suggested we buy Zoom stock in March. and That was a good idea. Like a dummy, I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't buy any. so. Uh, I think it's quadrupled since then, but uh, via Zoom, we, we, we tried to 
just connect our players every every week or two, just get on a Zoom call so they could see our faces, we could see theirs. And we had we signed six new players in the spring and summer via the telephone and, and <laughs> the internet. So they had never they weren't allowed to visit campus. So all the transfers we have on our team right now signed with USC. They never stepped on campus. They didn't even know what USC looked like. Uh, but uh, we were able to at least connect with them through the internet. What do you think is going to happen with the transfer portal now this year? That'll be interesting. I think it'll be a, somewhat of a free agency market, meaning players will put their name in the transfer portal and and uh, see. And I'm not sure how that'll uh, work out. I, I think the players, since they don't have to sit out a year, you'll see a lot more transfers. And But I, I do think there is a scholarship limit. So if there, if there are too many transfers, there, there may be some transfers that, that had a desire to go to certain schools that will get shut out of that because there'll, there'll just probably be too many. And uh, right now, I think last year, there were over a thousand transfers at the Division One level, and there's only 355 or 56 Division One teams. So it'd be very interesting to see if, if that number increases this year. So explain to the audience what the transfer portal is, because some people may not know that. If a young man or, or woman on, wants to transfer, they have to put their name in a thing called the transfer portal, which enables the other schools to then legally or under the NCAA rules, reach out to them and have discussions about them transferring to their institution. Without their name in a transfer portal, no other university can talk to them. Now, once you put it in, are you, are you out from the school you were in? I'm not sure about that rule. Uh, I, I I think that was a discussion among the N-Subway and the college coaches about when exactly is that scholarship, meaning if you put your name in a transfer portal, is there any way you can come back to your existing institution? And I'm not 100% sure on that. Okay. I mean, what do you think that should be? you have a point of view on that? Uh, well, I, I think uh, if you decide to transfer from an institution, my personal opinion is that means you want to leave. And, and uh, that's a discussion you need to have with your family, uh, the people around you, and, and then your college coaching staff. And, and, and if you tell the institution that you, you definitely want to leave, then I think that you should be in a transfer portal and, and need to leave that, that university. Uh, I don't think uh, because we only have limited scholarships. So if, if I have a player that wants to transfer, then we need to go fill that spot. And, and I'm not sure. Uh, what the timing is right now if there's if there's a particular date as you look at college basketball the way it's trending are there any new thoughts schemes ways teams are playing that that you see that are happening well the NBA has has been small ball for a few years if you look at the four out one in offense you spread the floor shoot a lot of threes that college game is a little different because of the the three-point line is not as far, and, the, and it's the spacing with the illegal defenses in the NBA, it gives the NBA just better overall spacing in general. Uh, colleges play much more zone, uh, but we play, we play with two big men here at USC the last couple of years because our big men are so talented, and in fact, our big, big players have been our leading scorers, and we try to still have good spacing, but if you don't have enough guys in the, on the court that can shoot three-point shots and really spread the floor, it, it becomes a little congested at times. But I, I would say in, in the NBA game, you definitely see that trend towards uh, the, the face-up four-man that can shoot the three. And, and the, sometimes even the center is spacing the floor, shooting threes. And the college game is gravitating towards that. Uh, but I think uh, the games are – the NBA and college games are different enough where you can still be very successful at this level with two true big men. Is that kind of your philosophy or is it depend on what 
what you can recruit. We've adjusted to, to our personnel and our, and our recruiting. Uh, when we had Benny Boat right here, he was a tremendous shooter at six foot ten, so it was great. It was a great luxury to have uh, to have him at the three point line. It, it gave us great spacing, and, and we we play with Jordan McLaughlin uh, with DeAnthony Melton, who's with the Memphis Grizzlies, and they they were two combo point guards. And Julian Jacobs and J Mac played in the same backcourt. So when you have two dynamic guards, and then you have a, a four man that can shoot forty some percent from the three point line, you're, you're going to be a very good offensive team. And and uh, but now that we have such great big men that are tr true bigs uh we're still very good offensively it's just a different offensive scheme it's a different strengths sometimes when you're playing that three out two in getting the ball inside where they can overplay and so forth and can uh, can end up causing turnovers trying to force the ball inside how do you manage the the decision making well, if, if you have two bigs, they have to be they have to understand spacing between themselves and where the guards are in the court. And then you have to have bigs that are skilled enough that can put the ball on the floor. We use our, our big men in different ways, the low post, the mid post, the high post, the perimeter. And uh, we will move them around and our big guys get double teamed a lot. So then if they get double teamed, your spacing has to be even better because uh, uh, you have to have three-point shooting and, and guards who can make plays when the ball's kicked out. So uh, there's more than one way to win a college basketball game, and uh, our guys have done a great job this year offensively of trying to buy into that spacing. So as you think about defense, you mentioned more zone. Anything else uh, in relationship to the college game defensively that's that you're seeing more of? Zone is prevalent. Uh, some teams will play it for 30, 40 minutes. Some teams just played a few possessions. Uh, I, I think three years ago, we played more zone. I think we played 50% zone. We came in second place in the Pac-12 uh, with Jordan McLaughlin as a senior, and our zone was terrific. Uh, but last year, we tried to play some zone, and, and our zone was terrible. So we went 99% all man, and, and we ended up ninth in the nation in field goal percent defense. This year, I think we're, we're beating our defensive metrics from last year. We're top, top 10 again in the country in field goal percent defense, and, and we probably play – 90% zone we'll throw in or 90% man to man and we'll throw in about 10% zone so I think it really depends on what what your individual team is good at and if you look around our league and around the country uh, there are certain teams that play more zone than man but at the end of the day you just have to guard you have to guard people and keep them in front of you and, and whatever defense works for a particular team I think that's what you gravitate towards. So from your perspective if you thought about the characteristics you're looking for in a player, regardless of big man, you know, point guard, wing, are there two or three characteristics that you want to see in your player? We look for players that have a, a competitive spirit, that want to compete and get better, that we have followed their success in high school or on the travel ball circuit to, to watch them interact with their teammates and someone that we think can buy into what we're doing here at USC. Uh, that means on and off the court. As I said, the academics and the off the court are very important for us as a coaching staff because we think that's where the players need to be set up for success in life. And if, they, if they're not willing to do what it takes in the classroom uh, socially, then the, on the court, they're not going to be willing to do what it takes uh, to, to become a great player. So, so we really look for a total buy-in to, to what we're trying to do as a program here uh, at a top academic institution in the United States. And, and also uh, to be able to handle the pressure of Los Angeles because uh, LA is a, a huge basketball market. We have the 
Lakers and Clippers right down the street in the Staples Center, UCLA's across town, and all the other great uh, Division One programs, the smaller colleges, and then the high school high schools here are just terrific. So uh, you have to be able to uh, wish, want to be in the limelight because you're going to be put on center stage in Los Angeles, and, and uh, uh, that's something we look for too. And we have certainly have that conversation. But but to us, it's a great opportunity for our young men, and I think they've really embraced that. To, to buy into the, the, the L.A. Uh, basketball scene. Well, Andy, I really appreciate you taking time out to come on with us today and uh, appreciate your candor. And uh, always been a pleasure talking to you uh, through the years. Well, thanks, Jed. You've been great. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you.